Hello, and welcome to episode 86 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. This year, we're celebrating Halloween by dropping a new episode every Monday in October. I'm no mathematician like our guest, but I think that's five episodes. Yes, but not just regular episodes. We are changing the format of our club meetings just a little bit, and we'll be joined each week by a special guest to discuss a classic horror movie of their choice. We won't have our regular features, and there won't be a podcast companion, but we'll be providing plenty of holiday content right here and on our respective blogs. Did I mention there are five Mondays in October? We invite you to celebrate with us by leaving your comments and or feedback. You can do that by joining our Facebook group page, or you can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave a voicemail at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Well, I guess some things will carry over from our regular format. Hey, now. Here today to discuss the 1974 black exploitation horror movie Sugar Hill is Dominique Lampsies. Dominique is a creator in several areas. She's a blogger at the University of the Bazaar, a crafter at the House of Silent Graves, which can be found on Facebook, and a writer whose works can be found in Exploits Easing, Non-Binary Review, and Muzzleland Press's Behold the Undead of Dracula, among others. Welcome, Dominique. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, and thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Wanted to have you on for a long time. I, you, you entertain me every podcast that you're on, so I hope you're ready to put on your A-game. Oh, yeah. Always. <laughs> Before we jump into thoughts about Sugar Hill, take a couple minutes just to tell us about yourself. I said a few things, but what else would you like us to know about you? I am what I term a relapsed goth. Back when I was a kid, I was hardcore into the goth stuff, and then I sort of phased out of it. Now I'm phasing back into it. I wear a lot of velvet, hang out in cemeteries at night, weird stuff like that, which, you know, would totally explain why I like a movie like Sugar Hill. You don't have any makeup on or anything, and I does it look like your hair is dark black? That's because the dye came out. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not for uh, lack of trying. Yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten this because my memory is really bad, but you participated in the countdown to Halloween on my blog one year and you wrote about Castle of Blood and Terror Creatures from the Grave, I think. Yes. Much belated. I hope I thanked you at the time, but that was fun and I appreciate you participating in that. Well, yeah. Again, thank you for having me. Yeah, that was fun. It was interesting to sit and think about those two movies, comparing them like I did. It's good stuff. Well, welcome to the show, Dominique. We're absolutely pleased to have you on here. And you've chosen a pretty fun film, something a little different than we, we've done. We get into the 70s, obviously, but you are kind of dipping our toes into some black exploitation, a genre that's got a lot of different movies, a lot of fun movies in it, some that are a little not as much fun as the others. Let's put it that way. Sugar Hill is is a movie that I'm absolutely familiar with. I've seen it several times, and I'm sure you have, because that's why you chose it. Jeff, you've seen Sugar Hill before? No, this is my first time. I know we'll get into it, but I'm a little confused. I thought we were watching a horror movie. I mean, Wesley Snipes is good, but I thought it was going to be like Blade or something. (laughs) Uh... That was my big joke, Rich. Okay, well, you know, that changes. I have not prepared then. If that's the movie we're doing, 
I'm on an entirely. Oh, it's not. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, we got to go back. We got to go back. <laughs> I didn't see Wesley Snipes. I saw Mac from Night Court show up, you know, but beyond that, I, I didn't see Wesley Snipes. This is my first time viewing. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Typical revenge film with sass. Yep, yep. Which is one of the reasons it's so great. Yeah. So why did you choose it? We gave our guests the opportunity to present a movie. And as long as we hadn't done it before, we were game for anything. And you chose Sugar Hill. How come? I'm not like an expert on it or anything. I am a fan of the black exploitation horror. And Sugar Hill is my favorite. Sugar Hill is the heir to a bunch of legacies. Is one of the reasons I like it so much. Because it, it manages to be a zombie film that actually harkens back to zombie films from the 30s and turns that racism almost on its head. It is a revenge movie, kind of John Wick with a black lady in magic instead of guns. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, from a female movie point of view, it's that lineage that we especially see in Mexican horror. It's not so prevalent here. But in Mexican horror, especially the woman who is cheated by a system and has to work outside the system, a.k.a. the supernatural, to get justice. And that is actually pretty common in a lot of cultures, not so much European ones, but it pops up in um, Asia a lot and then in Mexico also. And it sort of has those fingerprints of all these different things in it. Also, it's a Robert Quarry movie. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Robert Quarry any chance I get. Refresh me. What is your thing with Robert Corey? I, I was aware of that, but I, I don't really know why. Just because he is who he is? So I'm one of these people who I, I like the underdog a lot. I think people know, know that from the way I talk about Ed Wood and such. I think he's a better actor than most people give him credit for. His range maybe wasn't all that good, but what he could do, he could do very well. Because I'm a goth, I'm a, I mean vampire. He was a really hot vampire. <laughs> like he was a really hot vampire so that's automatically going to get me for me he's one of the big what ifs because he was so close a couple times to breaking through and he didn't and I don't know why the sort of what if the underdog effect appeals to me and he was a really good villain he was always a really good villain and I love me some villains well I was going to say he is the bad guy in this movie I'm not familiar enough with him to know did he play a mix of good guys and bad guys I don't really consider Count Yorga a bad guy. Yorga was his own thing. One thing that I, I noticed on, on his filmography was he, he took a turn rather sharply. When you look at the work that he did, he's doing this movie in 74, which I, I think falls in line with the other movies he had been doing in the previous three, four years. Besides the Count Yorga films, you know, the Dr. Fives Rises Again, Death Master, Madhouse. But by 75, he was doing guest appearances on The Lost Saucer and Far Out Space Nuts on Saturday morning TV. I watched both of those back in the day. They're serviceable, but that's a pretty sharp turn from being a headlining actor in, granted, B monster flicks, to all of a sudden popping up on Saturday morning TV, which was kind of reserved at that time. The live action Saturday morning TV shows were mostly either for young up and coming actors or Hollywood actors who had seen better days, not someone who had just been 
headlining films within the previous couple of years. What happened in between 74 and 75 that all of a sudden he was kind of on the outs? This was his last film at AIP. But if you kind of noticed before that, it was all sort of small roles and stuff. He didn't actually really do anything big before this either. What is he known for? Just these types of roles? Or did he have a heyday? This was his heyday. Okay. This was his thing. I almost wonder the stories about Dr. Five's Rises Again and him and Vincent Price. Because Robert Query kind of had a reputation after that for being difficult. Multiple people described him as being pretty bitchy. He was very princessy. He was very arrogant. But if you notice, those stories all seem to stem from Fives Rises Again. Mm. And for that, people didn't really seem to have much of a problem with them. I have the, the DVD of Deathmaster that has his audio commentary with it. And he was kind of arrogant. And I think he's kind of the person who could push you the wrong way. He, he had his moments. He maybe wasn't the most pleasant person all the time. Also, apparently, one consistent is that he had a temper. When he flipped out, it was apparently pretty bad. But really, before Five Rises Again, there wasn't really any stories that I know of, of him being precious on set. He could get over focus. And he butted heads with Vincent Price on that, didn't he? Well, yes, but it was largely AIP's fault. AIP manufactured a feud between them to fuel publicity for the film. They told Vincent Price that Robert Quarry was going to replace him. Yeah. He's going to be the next big thing in horror. We're going to put all our resources behind him, which makes it even funnier that they dumped him two films later. Vincent Price was very standoffish with him. And Robert Quarry being who he was, probably pushed back quite a bit. But it was manufactured. Yeah, and Vincent Price was so well-loved, you know, so many people. It's kind of like if if you're hearing of a a manufactured feud, even if you don't know that it's manufactured, Vincent Price feuding with Robert Quarry, everyone's going to choose Vincent Price. Exactly. Vincent Price, one of the easiest guys to get along. I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him. Obviously, if there's a feud between the two, it must be Robert's fault, right? And it's kind of sad that AIP set him up like that almost set him up for the fall. He was going to be the villain in that piece. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I read pieces of interviews with both Robert Quarry and Vincent Price from years later. And towards the end, they realized it. They realized they both been played. And they were both kind of like, well, how's he doing? Is he okay? I haven't heard from him on. And they're, they're like trying to ask about each other without asking about each other. They came to regret it because I think they had a lot of similar tastes. They were actually quite similar in a lot of ways. They could have been friends, like really good friends. But because some company wanted publicity. Mm. If we look at the films that he did, they were of a particular style. And mid-70s, 73, 74, 75, we're getting Exorcist, we're getting Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Horror movies are changing. 
And all of a sudden, a lot of the movies that he was doing, kind of old-fashioned in a way, they're not the more violent and the more contemporary horror films that were starting to become all the rage. And I wonder if that also played a part in him. He's got a reputation. Well, he did those those old horror movies. We're looking towards different people. I also get the feeling that he, like Vincent Price, didn't like where horror was going. Yeah. Because I also think, again, Deathmaster kind of pushed it for him. Because while it was so Yorga-esque, it was a little more on the modern funky side. And he yeah. didn't really seem to be feeling Yeah. That's a so, trippy movie. They were trying things in that film. He does seem kind of the oddball. At yeah. Times in that. Yeah. It's like you're he's, thinking. He's not He's not feeling no, it. yeah, he's not feeling it. How did you watch this movie for our discussion tonight? I actually watched it on Pluto TV. Okay. I'm in the middle of moving, so all my DVDs are packed away. Okay. Um, How was, was the presentation? Because I watched it on Freebie, and it was excellent. It was crystal clear, and I swear I had a Blu-ray in. Yeah, Pluto's the same. It's really nice, really crisp. You're going to get hit with ads with Pluto. They're actually, the ads are bad. How about you, Rich? I did not have this, so I sought it out. And archive.org, there was a rip of the Blu-ray. Sometimes you just got to know how to find those things on archive.org. It's a B film from 74. It's going to look as good as it's going to look. It's not going to look as good as some other films. But I was actually really impressed with the presentation. It was better than I remember having seen I think the last time I watched it was quite a few years ago now, and it was definitely not as good as the archive.org, which is probably the same thing that you guys have seen. It sounds like we all saw pretty good quality. Dominique, you mentioned you're a black exploitation fan. There's sub subgenre of, of horror films that came out during this period. I listed them because I just had to see, and there's nine or 10 of them. Have you seen any others? Where does Sugar Hill fit in among those? I've seen, of course, Blackula and Scream, Blackula Scream, which is number two and number three on my list. Okay. So, like, ugh, okay, the Black in the movie is the most Dark Shadows thing that's not actually Dark Shadows. People do not appreciate this enough. It is Dark Shadows with a Dracula character. It really is. I could go on about that for days. I also really like Scream, Blackula Scream because of its representation of voodoo, because it is a very real, authentic version of voodoo. I've been lucky enough to see Abby, which is the exploitation exorcist. Yeah, and its alternate name in the United States is the Black Exorcist. Yes. <laughs> but that one has been actively suppressed. Oh, really? Um, because the, the producers of the exorcist like sued oh. them. Yeah, so It's really hard to find. Have you seen Ganja and Hess? Yes. I love that movie. That is sort of a ghost story, right? Well, it's a weird ghost vampire thing. Because I think in strict technical terms, it's supposed to be a vampire movie. But let's call it a dark spirituality movie is really what it is. (laughs) Because it covers a lot of ground. It's also, of course, the great Dwayne Jones. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, he's amazing in this movie. He is amazing in this movie. And the fact that he was actually willing to come back and be in a movie for this movie tells you something about the quality of it. Because he was just not really interested in movie acting after Night of the Living Dead. He was just mm-hmm. kind of gone. 
How about Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, also known, I think, as Dr. Black and Mr. White? <laughs> I haven't seen that one, and I had not heard that alternate title. <laughs> I found that on DVD at a video store that was closing. Oddly, very recently, there was one holdout, and they had, man, how many years since video stores opened? They had Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde on DVD. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen that one. It's not up to a... Blackula, Sugar Hill level. You, you got to be in the right mood for it. I'm going to backpedal on, on Ganja and Hess. You guys really make me want to see it. Years ago, Vince Rotolo covered it on the B-Movie cast and did not enjoy it, hmm. as I recall. And so it's always kind of like I was interested until I heard his review. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm kind of in sync with a lot of other stuff Vince likes. So maybe I'll just pull that off in the back burner. But I remember when you mentioned that, Jeff, that you really enjoyed it. I really, it makes me want to go see it. Seek it out. Yeah, you should. It's, it's the kind of movie you have to be in a certain mindset. You have to be willing to sit down and just open your head and let it flow through you. Not a movie you can just sit and watch expecting something from it. Just let it happen. And then you'll enjoy it. I agree. I can remember exactly when and where I was when I watched that. And I was in a very relaxed, kind of laid back, just letting it swim over me. Yeah. How about Blackenstein? That one is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen okay. that one. My last one is JD's Revenge, which I've seen as well. That's all right. I actually had big problems with JD's Revenge. I oh, yeah. Being a woman watching that movie is a very different experience than being a guy watching that movie. It was mm. horribly misogynist. It was disgusting. I did not like that movie at all. I'm sorry. I bring it up. No, no, no. <laughs> As a female horror fan, these are the things you deal with. Yeah, no, that's interesting perspective. Do we need to say much about the plot? Richard, Dominique, do you want to give a synopsis? Tell us, what is this movie about? It's John Wick. With a black lady and magic instead of guns. It's a revenge. And no dog. <laughs> and no dog. Yeah. It's about a woman. She's a successful photographer. Her boyfriend owns a club. I think the movie is supposed to be set in Louisiana somewhere. Um, because at one point they mentioned that they're in a particular parish. And the only state that uses the term parish instead of counties is Louisiana. And a white club owner decides he wants to buy her boyfriend's club and the guy won't sell. So they kill him. Sugar, or Diana is her real name. She's black, a black person who got killed. She rightly determines nothing's going to happen. So she takes things into her own hands and she goes to a nebulous relation. I'm actually not entirely sure how the voodoo priestess is related to her, but apparently she is. And they call upon Baron Sambi, Ludoloa dead, to help them, who brings back a bunch of zombies, and then the fun begins. She wants the power to be able to get revenge, yet she sort of has power in some scenes, but then other times it's just the zombies kind of taking the revenge. And the Baron is always there during these incidents, and I didn't know, I don't know how that fit in, like with her having the power and doing it. Did he have to be there or did he just want to see the fun or any thoughts on that? My view, especially from the way Don Pedro Coley played it, who I absolutely adore in this movie. He is amazing in this movie. He was just doing it for kicks. He just wanted to see it happen. 
because I think he just enjoyed it. It would have happened whether or not he was there. He was just like, I want to see this. This is going to be cool. I'm going to make a comparison that is going to be a stretch, but I defy you to tell me it's not a similarity. This reminded me of the 1921 silent Fritz Lang film, Destiny. That is because the Baron would be a different character during a murder scene, and then he would sort of change, and you'd see, oh, that's the Baron. And in Destiny, the young couple, in three flashbacks, or I don't even know if they're flashbacks, but three scenes, death was always there, but you didn't know he was there. He was always a gardener or somebody else. And then when the fate would come to one of the doomed lovers, you found out that it's death. So I think death and the Baron, their roles in the movies are very similar. Yeah. Okay. I'll give it to you. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but I'll give it to you. Yeah. I, I don't think it's that far a stretch. Rich, what do oh. you think? No, I, I, I that sounds... I agree with that. I'm, I'm thinking some of the scenes where he's there, like in the massage parlor, right? He's just, he's there in the shadows. He's watching. He's not even really directing traffic, so to speak. He's a presence. And what a presence. He is so good in that role without going campy. I suppose maybe a little campy at first when he's who summons me. And I don't know, once he gets going, I'm I'm kind of along for the ride. And I'm like, nah, it's not camp. That's the Baron. That's how he's acting. And let's kind of go with it. In terms of voodoo, that depiction actually isn't that off from the lower Baron Somni. Because he is very pompous. He's very big. He's very grand. He's very fancy. So when he shows up at a voodoo ritual, that's really how he acts. For me, it worked because knowing what I do about voodoo, it was like, no, that, that's an accurate depiction of the actual spirit. So we are elevating this movie now. It's also historically accurate. We do have the Voodoo Historical Museum or, <laughs> that they have several scenes of. Yeah, I'm sure there is probably one really out there somewhere, but for some reason, I don't think it has the prominence in the community that it seems to have in this one was actually what the Houston library, I think, or it's like a Houston branch or something. It's also probably not run by an 80 year old white guy. No, that's what I thought was funny. I was expecting a different character. It's like, no, Mr. Ataz from Star Trek is running the library. (laughs) It just comes along, you know, hello, can I help you? You mentioned it was filmed in Houston a lot. Well, especially the woodsy type scenes reminded me of one of my all-time favorite movies, Frogs. It kind of had the same environment, but that was filmed in Florida, so it wasn't the same. I thought AIP, low-budget horror movie, maybe it was filmed in the same place, but no. I don't know the woman that played Sugar, Marky Bay. What a beautiful woman. She reminded me a lot of Vanessa Williams, who's got some history on her. There wasn't much, Um, honestly. She'd had 13 credits, mostly TV work. She was married in 74. She just does a lot of little miscellaneous TV stuff. Her last acting thing that I saw was that she was a desk clerk in one episode of General Hospital in 1982, and that was the end of her career. Dominique, do you have anything else on her? That's all I know, too. Outside of Pam Greer... 
black exploitation actresses really didn't have a lot of traction. I did think of Pam Greer. I haven't seen a lot of her movies, but I could kind of see her in the role to a certain extent. I wondered why uh, this woman didn't go further because I, I thought she was good and pretty. Another biggest claim to fame besides this one, she appeared in multiple episodes of Starsky and Hutch as the same character. For whatever reason, she was on the outside looking in for the most part. I think she was a good actress. I guess it's the 1970s. It's a different time. And finding lead roles for Black actresses was admittedly harder. There just wasn't as many good parts available. Sadly, it should have been. She was good both as the the good girl is the nice girl, but then she was also kind of good in those moments where she's getting her revenge and she was kind of relishing in those moments. Again, without coming across as cheesy, I think the only moment that really <laughs> was a bit of a struggle and it was just the way that it was written is the bar fight scene. That fight. Know, yeah, the cat fight. <laughs> Not the most believable, unfortunately. Not choreographed well. And I liked her when she was with Valentine, the detective. They used to oh. have a history. I thought he was a very appealing actor. I liked him, and I think he went on to do some stuff. Richard, you can probably tell us. Richard Lawson. He's still around doing stuff. And he was on screen, Black Hill Screen, too. Yeah, he had 122 credits. He had a nice lengthy run on All My Children at one point, 132 episodes of that. I remember him from, I think he was in Dirty Harry. He was also in Poltergeist. He was part of the crew there at the beginning. Lots of TV work. Dominique said he's still alive, still working. Hmm. What do we think of the zombies? We mentioned they're old-fashioned voodoo zombies, not Romero feasting on brain zombies. I'm going to ask the question and then answer it myself. <laughs> I love the zombies. You don't usually see them rise from the grave and have grass and moss on them that they even like sort of have to take off themselves. I thought that was very cool and it stuck with them because wherever they went, they had a little bit and also cobwebs on them. I even really liked the silver ping pong ball eyes because in the right light with the right angles, it did sort of look like they were glowing and seriously, very rarely. I thought, did they look bad? I thought it was a pretty good effect. Yeah, I love them. They are much more in turn with traditional voodoo zombies, which is apparently what they were trying to do. The moment that they were digging themselves out of the grave, you know what that reminded me of? Lucio Fulci zombie. Yes. When those zombies rise, it's the same way, which is kind of funny because this was made before that movie. Five years. Maybe Fulci saw this? Probably not, but I can dream. I don't but, know. There was um, a lot of similarities, though, and really, I mean, I suppose, like you say, maybe he didn't see it, but I'm almost willing to bet he would have seen it. It's a zombie movie, maybe for some inspiration. Yeah. If not, they're definitely on the same page. Yeah, exactly. In voodoo, the zombies are people that you enslave mentally, so they're not rotten. They're not gross. These ones look living. Like Jeff said, they were kind of dirty. They were kind of gross. Also, one weird detail that, of course, I would notice this. Yeah. The female zombies had nail polish that matched the ping pong eyes. Ooh. And I you can tell it, especially, 
especially in the scene where the massage kill. Oh, oh yeah. In their scratching back, you can see it. And I also love, we knew we were going to come to this. Baron Samdi's brides, when we first meet him, there's the two zombies that come up and they're brides. They are wearing old school vampire hoe dresses. The white, gauzy, flowy. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's just perfect because you get a little bit of the Western, you get a little bit of the old school gothic because this movie actually has quite a bit of old school gothic in it, but you still get the more modern tattered clothes. And again, these were slaves, so they get the chains on the wrists. They did a really good job of layering the meaning behind the look of the zombies, I thought. Much more than you would expect in a B-grade film. They put a lot of attention. Hank Eds or Eads did the makeup work. He didn't do much, but he did the board makeup in Star Trek The Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds. He didn't originate it because that was their second appearance, but he did do some of the work on it. You think about that version of the board. The original version had more of the pasty skin did kind of have a zombie-like look to them. Now, they kind of later tweaked the, the Borg a little bit. By the time they get to Star Trek First Contact, they made them less pasty. They gave them kind of a, a revamped look, a bit more realistic, I think. And they had to because it was going to be on the big screen. So they wanted to up their game a little bit. And then that's the look that the Borg have had ever since. My first... I think maybe even my second Star Trek reference. So you didn't think I'd find anything in Sugar Hill. Challenge accepted. I, I've got another one coming up. Dominique, you've entered the part of the podcast where we talk about Star Trek. Jeff can mention Dark Shadow references. It's just not as always easy to find Dark Shadow references. And sometimes now I've given up on Doctor Who references because most of these movies, we got to cover something British to get any Doctor Who reference. And it's a very narrow thing. So... One more thing about the makeup, their bodies were painted. Because that part of the voodoo, it was unique because sometimes I felt like it was supposed to be natural, like their bodies that had withered. And then I saw, well, that's painted. And then sometimes those guys would look like they were really ripped, kind of gave the effect of six-pack abs. And that might actually be the reason for it, largely, in voodoo. To make a zombie, you take someone, you trap their will. And then you literally bury them and they have to dig their way out. On one level, it could just be dirt because they dug themselves out. I also know when I was in college, I went to college in New Orleans. Most of my roommates were black. And there is one thing that happens. It's called ash on your skin. When black people's skin gets dry, it turns white and it looks like they got ash on their skin. Mm -hmm. That might be a reference to that. Because if you're dead, your skin's pretty dry. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, besides them looking ripped, which honestly was probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who do we hold responsible? We, I get the impression we think this is maybe a cut above some of the other black exploitation or even just plain old B movie horror movies. Is there a person involved in the production that we can credit for making it a little better than it could have been? For my money, it would be the casting and the writing. The writing in this movie is very clever, very sharp. In my head, it registers almost like Kolchak, 
because you know Kolchak always had that real quick, snippy, yeah. clever, off-the-cuff dialogue. And there are some scenes in this, uh, honestly, mostly directed towards Celeste, Robert Corey's girlfriend. But uh, yeah, I wanted it's to ask what you thought movie. about her. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, she's she is exactly what she's supposed to be. One of my favorite lines is when Robert Corey looks at her and goes, "Honey, we all know exactly what you are." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, what? Oh, that hurt me. (laughs) (laughs) He's a gangster. Gangsters have girlfriends like that. Gangsters aren't famous for wanting really intelligent women. So Yeah, and she, what sticks up for him and goes against Sugar, which in the real world, maybe she would backstab the gangster and team up with Sugar, but that'd be different. Well, not if she's racist, because she was shown to be the most racist one in the group. So I think in this case, she would have stuck with him. Yeah, that was probably the the hardest part of the movie for me is the some, the racist dialogue that you, you know you're going to get it unfortunately in these movies and it, sometimes you know I, you know I can I can kind of let it slide depending how it's done and even sometimes some of the lines I hate to say it but I can chuckle because of the way it's written it just sounds so bad it's super cheesy some of the lines that Morgan is saying to fabulous number one man who is shining his shoes you yeah, know especially it's like he's the right hand guy he's the guy that shows up at the club at the beginning with the three white guys kind of behind him can we just talk about how damn good he looked when he showed up fabulous oh, like the hat that hat was not your normal in every scene in the movie he was just like yeah that first one which if you notice, I don't think that's a suit. I think that's like a bodysuit. I think it's like one piece. Oh, wow. I don't think it's like pants and a jacket. It looks like it's one piece. And then well, later, like in the massage scene, he's got that weird blouse that has like the really tight elastic cinched waist. Yeah. The blue flower top. <laughs> what are you wearing? <laughs> well, and I thought of you too when we see, I can't remember his name now, but the boyfriend at the beginning of the movie. The lapels on that sparkle suit of his... I don't think I've ever seen on our regular episodes. We do the top 10 songs in particular years. And I've seen my fair share of dancing four top routines from Soul Train on some of these. And I'm not sure that I've seen lapels like that. That was impressive. It was actually the whole suit. The whole suit was that shiny material. Wow. He had to have that custom made. Like nobody would ever think to make that. That leads me to a question. Soon after that, they beat up the the boyfriend in the parking lot, and they're wearing masks. Why? Who's not going to be able to identify them based on what they were wearing? I was going to say. <laughs> and also, it's not even masks. It's the pantyhose over the face. Yeah. Now, here's my yeah. question. Yeah, Has that ever worked? Ever? In the history of ever? And the one thing I noted about that fight, I, I noted this when I did the, the blog back in 2013, and I immediately picked up on it again. I feel like at times, it almost like it's a rehearsal scene that they just decided to keep. When they're kicking him, they're barely tapping the feet. You can hear the shoe just kind of hitting the suit. Are you trying to hurt him? But he's dead, right? And then they kill him. And I'm like, did he die of boredom from the fight? Because it didn't look like he was beat up that bad. I mean, he got the one hit. They got out the little club and beat him. The rest of the time, 
He should have been able to take at least half those guys out, but then he's dead. Sugar comes out because she was really good in a lot of other scenes. I think besides the bar fight scene, that was probably her worst scene when she's like, they killed her man. And oh, you should have done a retake on that scene. <laughs> I felt like she could have done it better, but that whole scene just seemed like it felt tacked on. Like they should have done a reshoot of that because it, it wasn't as convincing as some of the other scenes in the movie, at least not for me. Well, this was AIP. Maybe they didn't have the money. It might have been, yeah, towards the end of the budget. It's like, all right, we got $49.32. We've got five minutes left and go. And we can't screw up this suit. This suit yes. is too expensive. We can't mess it up. <laughs> it, it's it's rented from Soul Train. They need it back in an hour. <laughs> You mentioned, Dominique, that it has some gothic elements and certainly the big house and the cobwebs and the dust and all that. Did you find any parts, maybe not scary these days, but would have genuinely been scary? Honestly, pretty much anything with the house, they use the house really well. One of my favorite parts was at the end, spoiler alert, she gets Morgan to come to the house and he's wandering the house. She's getting him ramped up because he's looking for her and he's wandering the house and all this weird stuff is happening. And then he walks into the room with the dinner table with all his dead henchmen smiling at him and her standing there like, oh, that's perfect. I love that so much. And then he freaks out and he runs or or no, the cat falls on him and he goes out the window. And I have a question about that. I couldn't do it, but he must be pretty physically fit. Could you get up right after that and run off into the woods? Maybe second story at the most. Maybe it was like a split level or something. They always seem to do that in movies, right? They have people jump out of windows and then they do the roll or they fall and then they get back up real quick and go running. And I'm like, I fell off a small roof once and I was in better shape than I am now. And I nearly died. I mean, it was like, I, I always think of that. You see these people jump and it's like, nope, they're back up and they're off. And I'm okay. But it's that Robert Corey. That's why he was able to do it. Well, okay. I will say that would have been a disappointing end if that had done him in because what finally does do him in, the thing that we were were taught about for years and when we grew up, we found out, oh, I thought it would be more of a problem. Quicksand. Quicksand. Yeah. Yeah. Inexplicable bat of quicksand in the middle of Louisiana. Yeah. (laughs) Back to when he was going, when Robert Corey went into the house and he's going up the stairs, there's a shadow on the wall. And my first thought was that that's a zombie. I mean, I even noted like, oh, how cool. There's a shadow of a zombie. Then I think maybe it was just him. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you remember that? No, I don't think I Because he doesn't encounter a zombie at that point. So it must have been his own shadow. Next time you watch it, see if that is anything. Maybe it's one of the crew got caught in the light. (laughs) That could be too. What else are we missing, Dominique? What else do we need to point out with Sugar Hill? One of the reasons I like the writing of this movie so much is because if you look at the kills, they layer a lot of meaning onto them. Take the first kill. When we talk about the racism in this movie and the language and everything that kind of makes us uncomfortable, I think it was put in there for a reason because essentially the target, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's really good that voodoo was used in this movie. The target isn't necessarily a white gangster. The target is essentially institutional racism. 
So the first kill, we've got a doc boss who is corrupt as all get out. He's making people pay to get jobs so they can live. And we see him have a run-in with a black dock worker who refuses to bow to him, but eventually has to. And he goes in and he gets got by the zombies. That particular kill, not only do you have a white person oppressing people, you have them oppressing black people, but throughout the way it's shot, the shackles on the zombies tend to be very prominent. So it's that layer of, we're taking out this person who is hurting everybody, not just black people, but everybody. The second kill, which is my favorite, my favorite. (laughs) The Baron comes and gets this guy and says, Morgan wants to see him. They go out to a farm. Now, the interesting thing about this is, if you notice the way the Baron is talking, he's affected that really stereotypical slave patois. He takes him out to the country to the farm, which in the South would have been worked by Black people, and he takes him to the pigsty which point sugar's there and she takes him and she chucks him in. Now the pigs are starving. So they tear him apart. At which point we have one of the greatest lines in movie history. Cause they take this white guy, they throw him in and she looks at the pigs. She says, cool as a cucumber. I hope they're into white trash. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is like the greatest line ever. Like every time I watch this movie, it gets me. I love this line so hard. In the agricultural context, we have the white person who was oppressing to get God. And as we move through them, most of the people we kill are white. And then we get to Fabulous, who is the Uncle Tom. He ends up getting got, and he kind of, I think he's supposed to be, like, if we're thinking in terms of the seven deadly sins, we're thinking that he's lost. You can tell this guy, is he's into luxury, he's just a big horn dog. So that's how he goes out. The layers that they put into each kill and how it's set up when they do, I can't remember, Georgie, the guy in the bar, when they use the voodoo doll to slit his throat, and he's harassing the black piano player. He's just there to play the piano. There's all these levels of just sort of, I guess, attacking the man, basically, with Morgan being the top dog, who is using legitimate business means to destroy other people, which is something we are all familiar with nowadays. Also, going into, before the show started, we were talking about Sugar's hair. Yeah. How it changes drastically. And when she is Diana and she's being professional, her hair, it looks very white. It's very smoothed down. It's styled. And her dress is almost, it's it's typical. Yeah. Typical of what women in the 70s would wear. Because basically... She is having to fit into society and be sort of what everybody expects her to be as a successful Black woman. She has to fit in. Now, as we mentioned, when she goes into sugar hill mode and she's doing the voodoo, her hair goes natural. Well, similar, close to how a Black person's hair would naturally go. If it's an afro, it was honestly probably some kind of wig. I'm guessing most of her hairstyles in the movie were wigs. When she is not having to put up the white front, and when she can tap into the voodoo, which is her legacy and her family, her legacy from being Black, she can be natural. 
and she goes natural with her hair. So I think that's a little more of a symbol of that type of thing. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. You're yeah. so smart. That's an absolutely perfect, spot-on explanation for that, which drove me nuts, you know, in past viewings. But now I see that. At the end of the movie, we have the scene where she is standing there in that uh, Sugar Hill mode. And I, you get the impression for that final scene. And especially hearing you, you know, give that explanation, it's like, she's not going to be Diana anymore. She's not going to have that persona. She is who she is. She is Sugar Hill. The Baron kind of passes the torch almost. Yeah, you got it. You got it. And and now I'm going to you know, let you take care of things. And I'm going to go ahead and take the white woman and take her back to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And- What's also interesting is that there is actually kind of a gender swap going on. One of the things that really struck me is that in the beginning of the movie, Langston walks up to her in the bar and she's sitting there and she's drinking and he looks at her and he goes, you're dynamite. Now, this is something I would expect some half naked chick to say to Shaft, not to a woman just sitting at the bar minding her own business. Yeah. And we do that thing where she has the, again, I, I do think. They needed to reshoot it, but that thing where she's sitting over Langton and she's no. I mean, how many times have we seen a guy do that over his dead wife? So we come to the last scene at the very end. The Baron hands over his staff, and the way she's standing is important because she's standing straight up with her legs apart, and she's got both hands on the staff, and it is out in front of her. She is taking up space, which is not something women do. Men stand like that. That is almost a Batman stance. That is almost that's like a Joker stance. I'm taking up space. You're going to notice me. Whereas women tend to be a little more compact and together and not straight. They tend to stand off to the sides and a little bit like that. She is commanding. This is my territory now. That's another reason why I love this movie. Because there is that really subtle gender flaw. Is there anything to make of her career that she's a photographer and she shoots, I think, mostly white women in bikinis, most at least <laughs> the only times we see her? Um, I, I don't mean to be joking. I'm serious. How does that fit in, in or is it irrelevant? I actually wonder if that isn't a play on Friday Foster, because I'm not sure how this movie came out in relation to Friday Foster, because that's the one Pam Greer played a really successful photographer who thwarted an assassination attempt for a rich businessman. So I'm wondering if it might be something to do with that. Successful, fashionable woman, that kind of thing. That's the only thing I can think of. Okay. Other than it's AI and they just needed tips. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was my first thought. (laughs) You talk about her being in sugar mode. So do you think, is she like during those scenes, like, I know that's probably like her true self coming out, but is she like literally being like possessed? Is it is she somehow getting power during those scenes that sort of transform her? Or is it just her going home, getting gussied up and then going out to get her revenge? I don't think she's getting any superpowers besides the ability to command the dead. It's ritualized. This is something like on a weird way. I almost think that she feels like this is her sacred duty. And when you're doing something that you feel you have to do and that is sacred, again, voodoo is a religion. So she is doing all this religious thing. You don't just do some big religious thing 
by just walking in in your jeans and a tank top and doing your thing. You have to get yourself prepared. And part of that is getting dressed, getting things set up. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think sort of the, the changes, it's a little more her aligning with, this is the person I'm going to be now. Because I'm sure when she's running around with no bra in her yellow little string bikini thing, she could come in on the zombies just as well. It's just that that's not important. Right. Man, I want to watch this again. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of layers to it that you wouldn't expect to find in a B-grade blaxploitation zombie flick. But obviously there's a lot more into it. Obviously, he was picking up on some of the stuff this viewing and then hearing you talk about it, Dominique. A lot more to Sugar Hill than it gets credit for. Sometimes we just enjoy the films for, for what they are. But it's kind of fun when you get one of these films and it's like, no, nah, there's more going on here. There's some subtext. There's some thought more than just let's get the gang together and make a zombie flick. You said the writing it definitely played a big part it's interesting because the the writing was by tim kelly and don pedro collie did some uncredited dialogue tim kelly didn't do much eight credits to his name i mean cry the banshee is about the only other film of prominence that i saw that he did directed by paul maslansky he's got some horror cred yeah all the police academy movies (laughs) well yeah that's the thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's not an A-list actor. He's doing Castle of the Living Dead, She-Beast, Race with the Devil, Damnation Alley. I mean, fun movies, don't get me wrong, but not A-list. And then Police Academy started off being a B-grade comedy, and I think by the end of that series is a Z-grade comedy. I'm going to say the credit maybe goes to Tim. Maybe there's more to Tim than meets the eye, and he just didn't get the opportunity. Well, wasn't he the... Because I thought he directed what was it, The Return to Oz. Wasn't that that really screwed up one that everybody talks about? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I haven't seen that one. I'm not a big fan of Oz movies. But uh, I remember hearing people talk about one of the Oz movies in the 80s that was like massively screwed up and scarred all these people. Well, yeah. If for years, you think Judy Garland, you know, she went to Oz, you know, she came back. She had a party with all the ranch hands. No, no, she was getting shock therapy. <laughs> and honestly, with so many horror movies, right, you wonder, I want to know what the next 10 minutes after the horror movie is, because there's always the one victim. And, you know, they're screwed up for life. They've seen their friends disemboweled. They've been chased with a maniac in a hockey mask carrying a chainsaw. They're gone. They're done. They're eating lime jello through a straw the rest of their life, you know, in in happy acres. You don't (laughs) see that in the extra 10 minutes. Always those things. What happens beyond? I'll use that as a segue to return one more time to Sugar in her Sugar mode. So at the end, you said, Dominique, that's who she's going to be now. We haven't even talked about Mama that was the voodoo priestess, I guess. She's old. She's weary. She doesn't know if she can do it, but she does. So the very end, not sure if it's even the last line, Sugar says, it's over, Mama. You can rest now. So do you think Sugar's taking over? Do you think she's going to be that person now? Yeah. I think I think Sugar is the priestess now. She's taking the mantle and we're going forward. Because at this point, you really can't say no. <laughs> yeah. Can't say no. Especially because in Voodoo, it's all about your relationship with 
the Loa and the spirits. And she's got a great relationship with the Baron now. And you really can't top that. Yeah, Mama Matress can just retire. So there's a potential for a sequel. If we can get a hold of Marky Bay and say, would you like to come to acting? We can make Mama Sugar or like Mama Hill. Is there- <laughs> Rich, we don't usually talk about the producer, but I'm looking through his credits right now. And I wonder if we can credit him. He did some really good stuff later in his career. Yep. Elliot Schick. He was, uh, I mean, there's some B stuff. Oh my gosh. He was production manager on Dillinger. That was shot in Enid, Oklahoma, my hometown. Deer Hunter, executive in charge of production. Sounds impressive. I don't know if what that really means. Island of Dr. Moreau, we've talked about that. Production supervisor, future world production supervisor. A lot of at least legit Hollywood movies. Maybe he had sort of the the vision. The producer sometimes is just on the outside looking in. Sometimes a producer has much more hands-on during the production not knowing what his level of involvement was, it's absolutely a possibility. Rich, any cast or crew that we haven't talked about? I've got a few. We mentioned Don Pedro Colley. <laughs> I looked at his credits, and he's got a, a couple of big things. He did THX 1138, which is a film I've never seen. I want to see it. He did some TV work, but he played in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. You know what he's credited as in that? He was credited as Negro. They couldn't even give the guy a name, mutant number 22. That just kind of made me sad when I saw that because I was like, nah, he's a better actor than that. He deserves something. We talked a little bit about Celeste. Lots of TV work for Betty Ann Reese, and she was in Deathmaster. We talked about Richard Lawson. Zara or Zara Cully played Mama Matrice. Did a night gallery, but she's best known for 85 episodes as Mama Jefferson in The Jeffersons. Anybody who grew up in the 70s and 80s, I think all three of us have probably watched our fair share of The Jeffersons at one point. Charles Robinson played Fabulous, best known for playing in 180 episodes as Mac Robinson in the original Night Court. And going to a deeper dive, but a Gets me another Star Trek connection, so by God, I'm going to do it. Tony Brubaker played the head zombie. Now, he was a stuntman, and he's actually been in some movies we've talked about. He was in Conquest on the Planet of the Apes. He was also in Earthquake and the Towering Inferno, which we've covered on the show here before. He was a saloon brawler in Westworld. Did lots of TV work. He was recruit number two in the $6 million a man episode Task Force. Most importantly, though, he was the stunt double for Michael Dorn, who played Worf in Star Trek Insurrection. That doesn't count because he was uncredited for this movie. It doesn't matter. He's in it. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, that's all I've got on the cast. I think we pretty much uh, covered the rest of them. The only thing I have, you know, we didn't mention it and it's minor, but for whatever reason, uh, and probably making it more descriptive when this was on TV, it was given the name The Zombies of Sugar Hill, which I guess was just for marketing purposes. That sounds like the place they came from. I know, yeah. It sounds like some sort of evening soap opera, like after Falcon Crest watched The Zombies of Sugar Hill. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Yes. I bet Don Pedro Colley's contribution to the script, I bet he ad-libbed quite a bit. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely think he did. Yeah. They just kind of let him run with it and he got into character and had a field day with it and it paid off. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Dominique, I'm thrilled that you recommended this movie. I would have got to it sometime because it's fairly well received. I've been recommended over the years. Thank you very much. And thanks for bringing your insight to it. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) This movie, I think we all agree is, do we all give it a recommendation? Oh yeah. No, no, I don't. (laughs) I liked it, but I don't, I can't recommend you see it. (laughs) I'll just reiterate that it's readily available. It's streaming on, as we speak right now, at least it's available on AMC plus freebie, Pluto TV. If you want to rent it or purchase it, you can, I don't know why you would if if it's on the others, but you can get it on Voodoo. As I said, look for the Blu-ray rip on archive.org. Not saying that's legal, but it's out there. The Blu-ray is also available from Kino Lorber, selling for about $20 on Amazon. No excuse to not see this one. Thanks again, Dominique. You've got the last word. Anything you want to say, anywhere you want people right now to particularly find you to see what you're working on or to purchase something? Shortly after this comes out, I will recommend any Sugar Hill fans out there. Check the House of Silent Graves Facebook page. I will have a little something. Uh, that I've been preparing for a while that is sugar her related. And I just have to say right on my shelf right over here, and if I had been smart, I would show you. I have your killer shrew that you made. (laughs) I love that thing. Rich, this is our second week of our five-week stint in October for Halloween. You want to tell everyone what we're talking about next week and who our guest is going to be? As we continue our marathon stretch during the month of October and our countdown to Halloween. We are going to be welcoming not one, but two guests next week. We've got Steve Turk and Alistair Hughes from the Hammerama podcast, the Diecast Movie Podcast. We're going to have a great conversation about the movie they chose for us, and that is Scream and Scream Again from 1970. Starring not one, not two, but three horror legends. Just don't expect to see them all in the same scene. Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing. And if you want to play along at home, Scream and Scream Again is currently streaming on Amazon Prime and Tubi. It is also available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber Classics. I want to play along, but I want to watch my ancient Twilight Time Blu-ray. If anyone has that, you can also watch it. Well, I see your word ancient, sir, and and I raise you because I'm going to watch it on my Midnight Movies DVD, where it is paired up with the Oblong Box. Cannot wait. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will talk with you again in a mere seven days. Thank you, everyone. Take care. 